This is Jimmy Dore, uh, one of the giants in podcasting, and you're listening to PF's Tape Recorder. Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape reporter. Coming up, comedian and comedy writer Lori Kilmartin. If I just don't do political stuff on my ass, and if I wasn't a, a writer during the day, maybe I would a little bit, but I, I kind of save my act for my life and those kind of frustrations that I think are a little more universal. I- We've been wanting to talk to Lori for a long time now. She's friends of friends of the show, like Jackie Cation and Jimmy Pardo and all them. So uh, it was a really good chat. I think you're really going to enjoy it. We have the song of the week coming up from Friendship. Uh, but first, I uh, was on vacation this week, so we're just trying to get the show put together just now on a Saturday afternoon. So you're going to get a couple of classic bits before we get to the interview with Lori. Enjoy. First, there was Vanilla Coke. Then, Pepsi jumped on the bandwagon with Pepsi Vanilla. And now, Pepsi is trying to rip off Coke in an even bigger way. Introducing Pepsi Coke. It's Pepsi with the flavor of Coke. Mmm, I haven't had Pepsi this good since the last time I had a Coke. That's because the can says Pepsi, but the taste says Coke. Wow, Pepsi Coke is awesome. See, some 20-something gulped it down and said it was awesome, so it's gotta be good. And it comes in every possible variety. There's Diet Pepsi Coke 1, Caffeine-Free Pepsi Coke, Caffeine-Free Diet Pepsi Coke, Cherry Pepsi Coke, Lemon Cherry Diet Pepsi Coke Blue, and Caffeine-Free Lemon Cherry Diet Pepsi Coke Blue with Caffeine. Wow, I had no idea the taste of all my favorite Pepsi flavors would taste better with a taste of Coke. Take the Pepsi Coke taste test today and see if you can tell if you're tasting Pepsi or Coke or both. Pepsi Coke. It's the Pepsi name you know with the taste of Coke you love. How many times has this happened to you? I'll be back in a minute. I'm going to the restroom. Hmm. Flounders or snappers? Ooh. Let's try snappers. Ooh, sorry, wrong door. If you're a guy or girl on the go, then you know theme restaurant bathroom designations can be misleading. But now you don't ever have to be confused again because you've got the Restroom Thesaurus. The Restroom Thesaurus lists every possible combination of male-female euphemism. Blokes and birds, bantams and hands, shoots and ladders, bobsleds and moguls, endomorphs and gynecomorphs. Yes, the Restroom Thesaurus is your one-stop source for avoiding embarrassing entrances into the wrong bathroom. Seafood restaurants. Oh, let's see. Buoys and gulls, bulkheads and portholes, hornpipes and shanties. Oh, here we go. Flounders are men. All right. Never walk into the wrong restroom again with the Restroom Thesaurus because you don't want to take a shot in the dark. Lori Kilmartin is a stand-up comedian originally from the San Francisco area. She's also currently on the writing staff of The Conan O'Brien Show. Here now is our interview with Lori Kilmartin. Well, uh, awesome. This is, uh, I feel like I know you because um, I'm friendly with a lot of people that you're friends with. Uh, kind of in that arm of the comedy galaxy in Los Angeles. Um, Jackie. Right. I'm very friendly with. Yeah. Uh, and Jimmy Pardo and, uh, and and all those folks. So, uh, And I've heard you on all their cool. shows, and I was thinking, like, boy, I wish Lori would tour so I could talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be in Minneapolis in a couple of weeks, but it's, right. uh, I, I have to kind of go by our hiatus week, so it's right, not right. as easy as I'd well, like it to be. Uh, unfortunately, or, or not really unfortunately, but uh, I'm in Cincinnati, and um, 
I only write for the paper in Minnesota, so uh, we still need to get oh, you. Okay. We still need to get you to Cincinnati uh, and do one of the clubs yeah. here. Yes. Um, so, but yeah, um, gosh, hardly know where to start. Uh, I guess a, a, a little familiar uh, with your background. I guess you're originally from uh, Northern California or NoCal, as they say, uh, like my sister. Mm-hmm. Where, where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Walnut Creek. It's in the East Bay. It's like about okay. 15 minutes from Oakland, Berkeley, but it's uh, over, over the hills, the East Bay Hills, Okay, through the Caldecott Tunnel. <laughs> I think that might be where my sister-in-law's family lives or somebody. Um, oh, really? So, yeah, because that sounds really familiar. And uh, previously, I didn't wasn't familiar. I only know like the big ones like Alameda and, you know, the the big uh, suburbs there in the, in the Bay Area. Yeah. But, um, okay. So cool. And uh, we're a competitive swimmer, but we're concurrently interested in comedy, or did that come later? Uh, I guess it came later. I, there wasn't, I, I mean, stand-up wasn't like it is now when I was a kid, where you could just find tons of it. So you had to basically stay up and watch uh, The Tonight Show. There you go. Um, <clears throat> so sometimes I would see it, but not that much. Um, uh, I, you know, Steve Martin was like uh, super popular, but he was pretty much the the only guy that I remember being exposed to as a, as like a pure stand-up. Um, for, for some reason, my parents weren't bringing home Richard Pryor records. <laughs> um, and uh, I can obviously cause as well. But um, uh, I, my entryway into comedy was more through Carol Burnett and the Carol okay. Burnett show. She was sort of uh, the one I, I idolized. And I kind of now when I look back, I'm like, oh, she was doing crowd work right up top. Like she would open the show and take questions and um, and then go into sketches. So it, it was kind of a very stand-up-y open to her show. And did you gravitate more towards the stand-up-y part or the sketch part? Because when I was growing up, I, I kind of did both because, you know, like you said, Steve Martin was really big, but then we had, you know, Saturday Night Live and SCTV, so that was kind of an influence too. Yeah, um, I I guess I, I didn't... Um, I, I guess I thought I would be more of a sketch person because I was interested in acting. Stand-up hadn't occurred to me. And um, only when I saw started seeing it live did I think oh I could do that that would be better because then I wouldn't have to depend on other people and it, yeah. it, sketch seemed like you really had to have a machine uh, in place and I was just this kind of fat depressed girl in Walnut <laughs> Creek and uh, it seemed easier to just sign up for an open mic <laughs> <laughs> so it took me a couple of years from the time when I started seeing comedy to actually get up on stage I just it really took me like two years to psych myself up but it was, then it became like something I was obsessed with in that time before I got up on stage. And apart from the swimming, did you have any other kind of vocation, uh, vocational interest? Uh, like a, nope. a, a, no, <laughs> I was, I'm, I'm, yeah, I was like a, I'm a one issue candidate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can only, I can only do one thing at a time, but I've been doing coffee for like 30 years. So I get, that might be the thing I end up doing only my whole life. So, so what did you major in in college? Um, I dropped out of college, but I did major in drama for the, okay. the brief time that I was there. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, and did you ever think you would wind up writing for a talk show, uh, sort of like the Tonight Show? Was that also a thing? Because when I was growing up, that also had become a possibility too. Because when I when you realized, oh, because Johnny would always talk about. Not always, but he always mentioned his writers a little bit. I remember the one time he did a thing where he was reading some silly list, and they were terrible. 
And he's like, these suck. Mm-hmm. And he, he put the garbage can on the desk and he lit them on fire. <laughs> and um, like, and then it's when I, it hit me. I'm like, there's a, there's a bunch of guys back there, first of all, who are shitting their pants going, oh, my God, he hated everything we wrote. And then it kind of – I put the two and two <laughs> together and they're like, oh, that's a possibility too. Did you ever like – that? What, when did that occur to you, I guess, as a possibility? It didn't – it never occurred to me. It, that always just seemed like a guy's job. I didn't um, – it seemed like you had to be a certain type of guy to do it and uh, like a crony in a way. It, yeah. it seemed like whenever – the few times I did see writers interviewed, they all seemed like they they just ate at the same deli every day. And I was <laughs> like, oh, that's I can't do that. That's not me. I, they wouldn't hang out with me. And um, so it, that wasn't a career goal at all. Um, and only when I um, – saw my first writing job was on tough crowd and colin quinn was only hiring comedians stand-ups i was like oh i well i do stand-up i could do that and that's the first time i was able to sort of see someone like me not a female but a stand-up doing it and then once i kind of got into it i i found that i really liked it and it and it um i like the stability of it versus you know having to um uh, depend on my income on needing road work all yeah. the time, cause, which is causes huge anxiety. And it's really hard. It's hard on your life and your body after a while. Um, and it's, it's a different kind of life to be at the same place every day, especially after a couple of years or decades as a standup, you kind of get used to being nomadic, even though it may not be the best thing for you. So it, that is an adjustment um, to be kind of, you know, leading a bit of a, a, a bit, what it feels like a groundhog day life every day. Yeah. Um, but I can, I feel like I can offset it with stand up and, um, and I kind of like it actually. And it, I would imagine, cause your, uh, your up seems kind of personal. I know you talk a lot about, uh, having a son and, and all that. And then, but I would imagine with writing for Conan, you get to write about different things and in a different way. So that, that probably helps, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's weird. I never, there's almost never a joke on Conan that, you know, like we write a ton of jokes every day and lots of them don't get used for good reason, mostly. They should probably be burned as well. (laughs) But um, but, uh, I'm never like, oh, I'll use it on my act because I just don't do political stuff on my act. And and Uh. maybe if I wasn't a a writer during the day, maybe I would a little bit. But I kind of saved my act for my life and, um you know, those kind of frustrations that I think are a little more universal. I, um, it's, it's really hard to do political stuff that, you know, it, it gets burned up so quickly and the news cycle changes so much that you could spend a week crafting, you know, one Trump scandal joke. And then huh. 10 days later, people have forgotten it because they're on to the new one. And you kind of just wasted <laughs> a lot of time and energy on a joke that is, pretty disposable and i i guess i'd rather put that energy into jokes that are that aren't that disposable they're more evergreen as they say yep exactly yeah wanda sykes has told us when she used to write for chris rock that she would take the jokes that he didn't like and go to the uh clubs in new york and do them and get really excited when they would get a huge laugh especially if chris happened to be in the room so she could say ha ha so i was wondering if if people do do that I guess that's like what Twitter is now, you know, like, oh, yeah, there's definitely some political jokes where I'm like, oh, I could, you know, reformat that into a tweet. And uh, so so that happens frequently, you know, that happens enough where I can go, hey, that was a good joke. (laughs) But, you know, I always, I always 
try to imagine being the person that's having jokes submitted to them. And, you know, you have to pick the 10 best ones for you, for your show that night. You have a limited amount of time to pick them and you have to feel like they're in your voice and you're excited about the topic. And, you know, sometimes you just don't want to tell another, uh, you know, Sean Spicer joke or whatever. It's, it's weird. It's, it, it, you, you want to, you want to tell jokes that make you feel excited about your monologue. And so sometimes there'll be a great joke about a topic you're sick of. And at that point, you, you just, you're just going to go, well, I'm going to pass on this anyway, you know. Do you ever feel like, you know, you kind of, I guess have, having been there a while, that you, you, you can kind of write more in Conan's voice and maybe do a joke that he'll find hilarious, but maybe you think is just okay? Because I used to write for a guy, and I, I knew some things, and he would do these fake news things, and I would write jokes, and I'd be like, I don't really find this funny, but I know Gary will find it funny, and I know he'll use it. Did you ever kind of run into that uh, artistic conundrum? Um, there's, I think there's jokes where we, like, I think we write some jokes that are a little bit easier, you know, that, that we're, you know, you can see the trick (laughs) behind them. They're not that, but they also, you know, they'll offset a joke that's really smart. Like sometimes we'll put a joke in the monologue that we know is not going to get a big laugh, but it's a really smart joke. And at, you know, at that point you have to have like a dumb one to follow it immediately. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the crowd doesn't get rough. So it's more like, you know, if if you trying to offset, you know, what you think might not get a great laugh, but you know, is a really smart joke and some, and people at home will really enjoy Like our, our crowd isn't like our live crowd isn't often super political. So sometimes, you know, we're like, ah, this might not work that well. So let's just do a little bit of an easier joke after it to get them back. So has your writing style kind of changed over the years and adjusted as since now that you've been writing in television for, I guess, mostly for the last, what, uh, at least a decade, I would say, right? From Yeah, yeah, a little over now. But um, I had a couple years off where I, I wrote on a website, so I guess that was a little oh. different. But uh, I think it's much more set-up punchline. I guess that's my intuition now. I, I, I know that I'm not a storyteller, and I know there's a huge storytelling movement. I'm like, oh, I can't do that. It's too rambly, yeah. and you have to go too long without without laughs, and I really like I really like writing a great joke and perfecting it, you know? So I guess I have fallen more in love with that side of the process than, you know, who knows? Maybe if I'd written on a different type of show, I'd be more more storytellery, but I'm I'm just not. I kind of like jokes. Yeah, that and I, actually, I think that's kind of coming back because the last couple of people I've talked to, uh, people are starting to gravitate back to, uh, you know, what we call jokey jokes. I guess is the uh, non-official industry yeah. term, uh, and or at least making their stories so they are more, you know, segmented to where it's you, you could probably break them out into a, into a setup punchline. I don't know if that's maybe due to the fact that. When you do get a, a TV spot, of course, it's almost always going to be, you know, set a punchline, set a punchline, unless you're Gary Goldman and have the mm-hmm. nerve to go out and do, like, just one segment of your set and, and smash it, fortunately, yeah. which he did. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. going to be kind of a, a kind of a trick. Yeah, I, um, like, I think there's this self-consciousness in a way of people not wanting to there, – there was of, of not being – not wanting to be seem too um, artistic or something or too where, you know, like you had to tell a story, had to be true. And it's like, no, you know, writing is a skill and truth isn't necessarily funny. Like it's, it's funny when you actually sit down and craft a joke about it. 
<laughs> you yeah. know, it doesn't. You, you know, most people don't have these amazingly funny things happen to them. You actually have to put the pro, put it all through your head and really, really write it out and and form it into something. Um, and that takes a lot of time. Um, and I and I think maybe there was a backlash against uh, formulaic comedy, and the backlash was let's be super honest. And and that's 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 a great thing too. But then maybe there's a backlash to all right, it's getting a little boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's let somebody somebody kind of mel- you know marry the two, so it's it's truth and funny jokes at the same time. And you've written uh, a couple of books too. Uh, was it hard to like get that process rolling? Because I talked to like at my day job, uh, the other writer I talked to said, "Hey, Jim, you ever think of writing a book?" And he's like, "Ugh, I write so much during the day here that I just can't imagine going home and then having you know to try to you know put a book together." Yeah, it's. Um, I just I'm just doing copy editing for, or I'm getting copy edit notes from a book that I just wrote, and uh, yeah, it's like early morning stuff. It's uh, I. I it was done like an hour a day, <laughs> an hour at a time in the morning before my kid woke up. Um, uh, yeah, it was a pain, pain in the butt. I, I, maybe I'll feel differently in a year, but I never want to do it again right now. <laughs> just, I just want to have a more balanced life where I'm not always hunched over a computer typing. Yeah, I, I'm trying to figure a, a way to uh, do one of those those tricks where like this one book I read it was the the top songs of the '80s. And what these two people did was they just ostensibly interviewed all these people from these bands and just wrote a brief wraparound, uh, you know, to go around the chapter. So I'm like, man, that's pretty cool because you really only have to do some, you only have to do editing at that point. There's very little oh, editing involved. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's the, that's the way to do it. It, it is, yeah. Sure. Um, with the, with the podcast. Um, you guys talk mostly about stand-up comedy from a woman's point of view, and you had mentioned uh, earlier about you, you viewed writing as kind of a, maybe a guy thing when you first uh, were exposed to it. And I guess comedy in general has mm-hmm. kind of been like that over the years, less and less so as we've gone on, but not probably as much as it should be. We, sh- we probably should be at a more even footing. Is that, is that what you're finding? Yeah, I mean, it's where obviously Joan Rivers was famous when I was a kid, but I, I never looked at Joan Rivers and was and thought, oh, I want to do that. Like I, I, um, I, I didn't love her type of comedy, you know. And I, I, I remember like she had a funny joke, but I just about the about Elizabeth Taylor standing in front of a microwave yelling hurry <laughs> like oh my god <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it w- i mean her her I, I appreciate her style a lot more now than when i was a, when i was a teenager i was like why is she so mean to everybody um and now that i'm a mean person i get it but um <laughs> but even though she was like a role model she wasn't anyone where i thought oh i want to be like that so she didn't seem uh she wasn't she didn't inspire me to try to do stand up um but as like an as an older woman now, I'm like, oh my god, she was a monster. I, I mean, I so much respect for her career and her work ethic and stuff. Um, and I guess like Jackie and I, we we do talk about comedy all the time. And and I guess we, I know we talk about stuff that bugs us that we feel like is sexist. But I, I you know, we're women, so everything we talk about is going to be from a woman's point of view, just yeah. because we're women, you know, by default. Um, I do, you know, there is a, there are a lot more women in stand up, and it's great. But there should be more, and I hope, uh, I hope, you know, it just keeps coming. It's like a, it's like a tidal wave; you can't stop. So, yeah, <laughs> the more uh, women, the more women, young women see, the more women they're going to be. Because you need to see somebody who 
you can identify with and go, I want to be like that. And a lot of women can't, you know, and don't, and I, I don't think men do this with women either, look at someone who's the opposite gender and go, oh, I can do that too. It's very, yeah. you, you kind of, it kind of really helps to see a version of yourself doing something. Yeah. Well, I have a confession. When I was in my 20s, I was one of those numbskulls that was like, uh, there aren't very many funny chick comedians. And then I realized shortly thereafter, I'm like, there actually aren't a lot of funny comedians. <laughs> There's very few <laughs> that were, you know, because I looked at the people I liked. And among them were women, by the way. Paula Poundstone was uh, one of yeah. my favorites, along with yeah. Jerry Seinfeld and that whole class. But then I realized, you know what? They're just, most of the comedians, yeah, they're fine, but there's a big difference between Jerry Seinfeld and Paula Poundstone and people like that. And then the people you see, you know, from time to time on, you know, Letterman or The Tonight Show or things like that. So. Um, at least I got turned yeah, around on like that. Yeah, it's like everything else. Yeah, I mean, um, it takes a really long time to be a good stand-up because you have to find yeah. a voice that's different. I think for, you know, the first five or ten years, a lot of times you're copying your influences. And mm-hmm. then, then you, you know, if you keep going and you keep getting up on stage every single night, you start to get your own voice. And you, and your own life takes over. You know, for, if you're just a stand-up, you're you're kind of leading the same life as everyone else that's at your open mic. You have a day job, whatever it is, that might be different, but you have the obsession of stand-up at night. And so everyone kind of sounds the same in a way. And then as you get older and you start creating other parts of your life that are not about being on stage, they start to make you who you are. And in your response to them, your response to having a family, your response to having a good relationship will make you different from the next comic you know, and that's how you that's how you really start to stand out and and have an original voice. That's why uh, Paula Poundstone said one of the reasons she left Boston for San Francisco is because she said she was felt she was starting to maybe mimic some of the, her friends in Boston. And she thought she had a fresh start in San Francisco would kind of shake things up. Oh, wow. Yeah. And wow. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I she was one of the ones I would see when I was a, when I was very young, a, a kid working club. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Mm hmm. Yeah. So good. Um, another thing Jack Ano talks about with not, getting back on the kind of the same subject is that it isn't a matter of um, so much uh, women being treated crappy, although there's, probably there's an extra layer on top of it, but just comics in general, just simply not getting paid or, you know, getting paid, you know, pennies or, you know, something like that, or just, you know, having to do all these you know, rubbishy road gigs and, and things. So I guess it's, you know, I, I, but I guess then there's, again, there's that extra layer on top of it that, you know, there's probably still some sexism in the industry that makes it just that much worse. Yeah. It, I mean, there's definitely sexism and chauvinism and in, in stand-up. I mean, if, if you just look at it from two people that have a day job that want to be comics, I mean, uh, statistically, um, the woman is already earning less, even if, say, they're equal, you know, and uh, all other parts, the woman's probably earning less than the guy because yep. that seems to be what's still happening now. So not only is she not getting paid at night like the guy, she's also work she's paying the same kind of rent and stuff on less money i mean it's it it all starts to pile up so you know it it is a it's extra challenging for a female to do it but um on the other hand audiences love it and the women in the audience love it and you know all you need to do is like look at wonder woman last weekend i mean yeah filled with females loving it like there is a dearth there's still not enough content for women you know, and yeah. you could you could spend your whole life tailoring content to women and you could be a bajillionaire. <laughs> you know, we're yeah. dying to spend our money on stuff that makes us feel as good as stuff makes guys feel good. Yeah. You know? 
Well, yeah, exactly. Well, this has been terrific. Thank you for taking the, the time. I know you need to get to work. I need to get back to my day job here, and um, this will be... In, <laughs> we both got our day job. Yeah. Right? This will be uh, in print and online in City Pages the week you're up there, and then the podcast will probably drop in a couple of weeks. I've got, fortunately, I've got a couple okay, of uh, cool. interviews in the can, and I'll, uh, I'll let Jess know and everything. And uh, we'll tweet it cool. out and all that. And uh, great. It was good talking to you. I'm glad we finally got this done. Thanks. Yeah. Hey, would you be able to ask people to buy my CD if they want to? It's, uh, I'll mention it in the... 45 Jokes About My Dead. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll mention it in the piece. Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, Lori. Bye-bye. Great to talk to you. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again to Lori Kilmartin for being on the show. You can catch Lori, let's see where, at the Acme Comedy Company, June 29th through July 1st. If you go to her website, kilmartin.com, she has a calendar, but it doesn't look like she's updated them, uh, updated those dates uh, recently, probably because she doesn't tour a whole bunch. If you're in Southern California, you can probably catch her out at some of the clubs there because uh, she does have that day job over there at Conan. Uh, do pick up her books. Um, uh, how would you, I guess we can say shitty mom. I will put the uh, uh, language thing on the iTunes feed. Uh, and also uh, 45 jokes about my dead dad. So look for those as well. And of course, the Jack and Nori podcast. You can look for that as well. Available wherever you get podcasts. Okay, so bring us up to the song of the week. And the song of the week is from Friendship. If you remember last week from our Bunbury review, we were supposed to interview Friendship. And then Friendship, I guess, looked us up and was like, Oh, yeah, we're not going to talk to somebody with 5,000 listeners. Uh, we, we are much too important for that. No, I, in fairness, I think probably what happened was it happens at festivals, and this happened uh, with cults a couple of years ago. Cults literally got to the gig like an hour before they were supposed to go on, and then they had to go on to another show uh, somewhere else across the country. So I'm, my, I reckon Friendship probably got, it, got to the gig and was like, oh, we're just going to get in, get out. And, you know, and it's tricky to get in and out of a festival, too, I imagine, because it isn't just you. You've got to get around everybody else and your stage set up. So anyway, Friendship has a, an, an EP out. Uh, they are a couple of guys from Los Angeles. They were working independently. They weren't really liking where their music careers were going. They teamed up, and they released, some, they released something called the Truce EP. This is a song from it. Not sure if this is one of the singles, but this is the track I dug most. Hopefully you'll dig it, too. The song is called A Thousand Nights. Here's our song of the week on PS Tape Recorder. So long, and thanks for listening. When the fever's gone And the rose to dust I touched down Sunday To tie the loose ends up With a pocket full of That gypsy stuff I heard you calling me, calling me, calling me through the dissonance I've been known to run just to feel the rush But the dying sun illuminates so much It's hard to see beyond what's inside But when you tilt the light I realize Between me and